Okay, here is part two of Dan Duckworth's presentation, which is part of the Young Saints virtual conference, which begins February 22nd. I hope you're enjoying this. You can continue listening here. Uh, there's a few visuals that Dan shows that will make a part of the video presentation as part of the Young Saints conference, which begins February 22nd. So again, go to leadingsaints.org youth to register for free or find the link in the show notes. Yeah, and it's not right or wrong necessarily. Right. It's just it's what we have to work with. Yeah, that's our reality, right? That's our that's our reality, and nothing about children and youth changed that. Okay, so we'll come back to that in a minute, but I do want to take a second to say. So when we talk about children and youth being youth development, it also means that we need to acknowledge that we have a goal, right? We're not just doing this because we're doing it ad nauseum or this is our calling. We're just waiting for two years. We actually have this idea in our mind of what a youth is supposed to become. Now, this is this is a crucial point here, because as we talk about later, you could go down two very different roads with this. The first road you could go down that's not helpful is I have a very specific idea of what it means to be a proper Latter-day Saint or I have a very specific idea of what it means to be a proper American or a proper adult or a proper whatever. Right. And so we get this fixed image in our mind of what a youth is supposed to become. And then we totally are in contradiction to the natural processes of youth development. So what I'm not talking about is doing that fixed image, right? But what I am talking about is acknowledging that we do have a general goal. And for example, when we do youth development as a country, we have an idea of what it means to be a contributing citizen of this country. When we develop youth in a sports context, we have an idea of what it means to be a good player or a good teammate, right? In the church context, our goal, I'm going to name our goal. We could argue about this. And if you feel like it's, it's worth talking about, we can talk about it. But I'm going to name our goal as we have a goal to develop disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, the, the practical, immediate translation of that is we have a goal of having productive, effective missionaries. We have a goal of having productive, effective parents and family people spouses, right? We also have a goal of developing productive and effective leaders in the church. So when I say disciple, I mean very I mean something very specific. I mean people who show up for Christ, people who contribute to the kingdom. So this is a different idea of discipleship. It's not the idea that, hey, we just want people who believe in Jesus. It's not even just the idea that, hey, we just want people who will stay on the covenant path, which is critical. But when it comes to youth development, we're also ideally looking for people who will come do the work, who will roll up their sleeves, who will stay in the fight, who will help other people on their covenant journey. We're looking for leaders and for contributors. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, some of those things can seem like obvious, like, well, of course we want that, but very often we get distracted from that by just, well, this is what we always do. Maybe it's tradition or, you know, there's always these competing focuses that sometimes take us off that one effort of creating disciples of Jesus Christ. Even the, you know, you, you mentioned the covenant path, which again is crucial, but if the only focus is this covenant path, we sometimes can miss Jesus in that covenant path, right? That we're trying to lead people to. Right. And if you look like, one of these days I will do this research study, I think. If you look at the Bible, if you look at Jesus's teachings, 
I'm willing to bet that at least half of them have more to do with your character than they do with your testimony. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. First, I need to, I need to develop this idea of what is character and why are we going to talk about character here? Okay. So we've already established that CNY is youth development. Now let's say that youth development is fundamentally character development. Now back to my experience in leadership development. In my industry, most people, remember that normal curve, most leadership gurus, mentors, professors, coaches, whatever, if you were to look at at how they approach leadership development, they have a fundamental belief about what leadership is and how leadership develops. And they believe that leadership is a reflection primarily of your knowledge or your skills. And if you believe that leadership is a reflection of your knowledge or skills, then you spend your time and your energy trying to transfer knowledge and to develop skills. Now, in my personal experience, before I got into leadership development, I understood that I knew very little and I had very few skills. And yet I had exercised a tremendous amount of leadership in terms of making change happen and developing and creating through teams and organizations. So I fundamentally knew knowledge and skills isn't what leadership is. And yet I had no idea what really makes for leadership until I got into the research. And I found a guy named Bruce Avolio who researches or has researched on transformational leadership and authentic leadership. And he's one of the few people who really has dived into leadership development as a research field. He couldn't say it any clearer. Leadership performance is primarily a reflection of your character. So great. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for handing me that nugget of wisdom. But I don't have a clue what you mean by character. And I don't have a clue what I can do to change somebody's character as it develops. So that was the next iteration of my learning of how do you get into that, right? Well, at the same time, I'm a young men's president. I'm going to youth conferences. I'm raising my own kids. And I'm starting to recognize youth development isn't about knowledge or skills. That we have a fundamentally flawed approach in America, at least, as I've experienced it, but probably throughout the world, in which we think if we just gave our kids more knowledge and we just taught them more skills, that then they would become the fully contributing adults that we want them to be. And that's just not the case. There's something else there that matters infinitely more than that. And that's your character. Okay. So now the question is, what is character? Well, character is how you show up when you're not thinking about it. In other words, you have this idea in your head about who you are, about who the other people in the situation are, and about the way the world works, the way, the way your world works. And most of what you do is reactionary based off of that model in your head. You don't think about it when someone, when someone stomps on your toe, you don't think about how am I going to react? You just have certain beliefs about yourself, about them, about the way the world works, And then you either scream or you cry or you punch them in the nose. And that's all based off of that model in your head. Okay. Well, it's that model when you're talking about leadership, it's that model that needs to change. When you're talking about youth development and then becoming disciples of Jesus Christ, it's that model that's in development. That is the key. That is the focus. That is the only thing that matters in the development of a disciple is what model are they creating in their head? What beliefs are they developing? Defining beliefs about themselves, about other people, and about the way the world works. That's what really matters. Yeah. So the interesting thing, you know, you talk about character development and youth development being character development is like, it makes so much sense. But the tricky thing is, is 
character is so nuanced, like it's hard to measure, right? Like where we can take behaviors and like temple attendance and all these things. And it's easy to default there because we can measure that and we want to see progress. And how can we see progress when it's hard to measure, but we have to re recalibrate to the, the world of character development, because if we get that down, I mean, that's going to serve the youth and yeah. every individual more than, than anything that's we can measure with a specific gauge. Yeah. I'm going to say something right now that I already know a lot of your audience, our audience is going to not agree with, or they're going to have a reaction against it. This is what I like. (laughs) When I talk about character, I'm not talking about the model you have in your head of what a good person is. Mm. Character is neither good nor bad. It just is. The model in your head is not good or bad. It's either effective or not effective relative to your goals. It's either useful or not useful in helping you achieve the things you want to achieve in life. And so this is why acknowledging our goal as a community is to, is to help develop disciples of Jesus Christ. This is why that matters because we're not defining exactly what a disciple of Jesus Christ is other than saying a disciple is someone who shows up consistently for Jesus Christ. There's someone who applies their time, their talents, their gifts, and everything that God has blessed them with to building up the kingdom of God. Okay. That's what a disciple is. The question is, When life gets hard or when life gets tempting or when situations change, will you still show up for Christ? So the individual has their own goals and their character is either helpful or not helpful to them reaching their own goals. But as a community, we have to ask ourselves, what is the character in our people that helps us achieve our goals as a people? And that's where you start to look at what Jesus is talking about. I mean, Yes, blessed are the meek because they shall inherit the earth. I mean, there's like this, there is this sense of like, you just become like Christ just for the sake of becoming like Christ. But let's look at it more practically. Christ was a builder of the kingdom and he's asking for builders. He's asking for laborers. And he's saying not all the fruit, not all the harvest that comes in turns around and is a co-laborer with Christ. A lot of the people who come into the kingdom who get on the covenant path, man, they're just trying to stay on the covenant path. And the truth is they really don't have a lot to give to other people, given their circumstances or whatever. But also a lot of the times it's character. Do you have the character of someone who shows up for Christ as Christ would in this situation? Okay. Now I'm going to disambiguate an important concept because this is another like unique thing about what we face and deal with as youth workers in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that is the idea that becoming a disciple isn't just about your character. It's also about your testimony. Okay, so we now have two concepts related. Your character is how you show up. Your testimony determines why you would show up for Christ. And so just as an example, this may be somebody who, I mean, you someone can go through the church youth program and develop good character. And maybe later on in life, they don't have a strong testimony. They may separate themselves. They're a better person or their character has been enhanced because of the influence of, you know, the church organization, whatnot, that doesn't necessarily mean their testimony went along with that down that same path. So when my younger brother was uh, deciding to leave the church at the age of 19, of course, that's a, you know, everybody's worried about that or they're concerned about that. What are the implications? And I had this distinct moment, I think with the spirit where I felt, you know what, he's going to be okay because he knows how to work. And that work ethic is fundamentally going to prove his salvation. Okay. What I was saying was I'm letting go of the need to say, if he doesn't have a testimony, he's going to hell in a handbasket. 
And instead, what I'm recognizing is because he has some real character strengths that will serve him well in life, he's going to have a good life. He's going to contribute in many ways to the cause of Christ, even if he's not part of the church per se. And in the end, whether it's in this life or in the next, I believe that that work ethic, that character trait that he had developed, I think it's going to really serve him well in terms of his personal yeah. salvation. Yeah. And, and and this is really helpful as you're, I mean, this is a paradigm shift a little bit because it's so easy to get hyper-focused on the testimony aspect of what the youth program offers. And that's that's important. That's a part of it. And we need to create and hold space for that. But we also need to recognize the character development that needs to happen at the same time. Right. Yeah. So when I say CNY is youth development and youth development is character development, what I'm saying is, is we have to stop focusing exclusively on testimony development, which when we approach the goals and we approach the, the activities, we're going to get into some of those practicalities in a little bit. But fundamentally, if we approach those as if we're here to give them a testimony, then we are missing out on huge opportunities to develop their character. Now, we need to do both. And it's not as simple as saying, Today, we're going to work on character and tomorrow we're going to work on testimony, right? Sundays is for testimony. Weeknights and and youth camps are for character. Well, guess what? If I was mentoring you as a youth worker, I would help you to distinguish when you show up on a given to a given experience. Are you showing up primarily with the goal primarily of testimony development or the goal primarily of character development? Because the truth is, unless you're focused, you're going to do neither of them well. Now, I also recognize it's way more nuanced than that because these things don't necessarily develop in a vacuum. Right. But when you show up and you know what you're going for as a primary focus, it changes how you plan. It changes who you involve. It changes what you care and stress about, what you care about and stress about. It focuses you. Whereas right now, a lot of the frustration that I see comes from not being focused on what it is we're trying to do in this moment. Gotcha. Now, a couple of just quick examples I think might be helpful because the scriptures are replete with examples of character versus testimony. Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. We sing that in primary. That's right. Jonah must have had a testimony. He must have had experiences with the living God that gave him enough faith that God could give him an assignment, could give him a calling. Okay. I think he was pretty good in the testimony department. Did he need any witness that God was real? I don't think so. He's having conversations with him. He had terrible character. How do you show up when you're not thinking about it? When God asked Jonah to go help his enemies, Jonah's character said, I would rather run away. That's the character he had developed. The beliefs that he had built in his own head about himself and about the others and about even the possibilities of repentance and forgiveness. That wasn't about testimony. That was about his character and his beliefs. And he said, I would rather run away. Now that in itself shows you the character of Jonah. It's not about testimony. He character-wise thought he could run away from God, right? Anyway, I won't go into more detail with that story. Look at Peter. Mm -hmm. Peter had a solid testimony. Thou art the son of God, right? And flesh and blood have not told you this. That has been God who has told you this. By the way, I didn't define testimony, okay? How you get a testimony is through direct experiences with God. Testimony is a witness of something. You cannot testify of something unless you are a witness of it. And you are either a firsthand witness, meaning like the original 12, you saw, you felt, you heard, right? Or you are a witness of an experience with the Holy Ghost. And so when we stand up and say, I have a testimony, 
what we're either saying is, is I've seen God personally and I know that he lives because I saw him last night. Or we're saying, I had this experience with something that I think is the Holy Spirit of God. And it was so real to me that I can stand up here and say, I know that God lives because that was so real. So we're actually not testifying directly that God lives. We're testifying of an experience that I had. And I'm extrapolating from that, that God lives or whatever the nature of our testimony is, right? So yes, we need our kids to have that direct experience with God. There should be a ton of energy and effort poured into how do we help? You can't, this isn't knowledge. This isn't skills. You cannot pour a testimony into someone's head. The only way to get it is for them to have direct experiences with God. Peter had that. He spent three years with the living Christ. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was at the Last Supper. And Christ looks into his eyes and says, you have weak character. And at the end of the day, before dawn, you will have denied me three times. In other words, your character is such that when the people are looking at you, And when you're uncertain about the situation, that you will lie about the things that you know to be true. That's your character, Peter. Mm. It's not your testimony. It's your character. And yet Christ calls him not because of who he is character wise, but because of who he can become character wise. Yeah. And and my mind goes to the, uh, you know, feed my sheep, you know, discussion that him and the Savior had. That was a. That was a discussion about character, not necessarily like, hey, Peter, I thought you believed in me. What's the problem? I thought you had a testimony in me. I got Christ didn't take it there. He said, like, you're still missing it, right? And then you look at the the man that Peter was in, in the book of Acts and beyond, like, that's a different character of a man there. Different you know? character. <laughs> Did he know any more 30 years later that Jesus was the Christ? I don't think so. He probably knew it most when he was with him, when Christ had descended from or, you know, had come amongst them and was ascending into heaven, right? Probably doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. But what got better was his character. Yeah. So help me connect this back to your your overarching theme here as far as mentorship and whatnot. Like, I think these are helpful principles and concepts to consider, but how does this help us become a better mentor? Because if you don't understand this, then you can't be a youth mentor. If you don't understand what character is and that that's your goal. So goal, big goal is disciple of Jesus Christ. But sub goal yeah. is to develop the character of Christ, to develop the character of a disciple of Jesus Christ and to disambiguate that sometimes it's testimony, but that's not enough. Why do we have missionaries that go out and they have wonderful testimonies, but they come home? Sometimes it's because of past transgressions or whatever. I'm going to ask you this, Kurt. This is an yeah. aside. Do you know what percentage of missionaries come home early? This is not uh, a quiz. This is not a quiz. This is me wondering if you have heard this because you're in so many oh, conversations. I, I don't. I've heard it's like. Uh, well, I think I've heard one in four don't participate in the church later on in life. I don't know these. I haven't confirmed yeah, these, but these are just things fine. I've heard. Wanna, I was just curious. Jana Reese, who writes for the Salt Lake Tribune, there's an article that she put out in 2018 in which I think she actually conducted the research study, if I remember right, or she was oh, yeah. at least intimately involved with it. She goes as high as to say 33 percent of missionaries come home early. That statistic blew my mind out of the water. I had heard through the grapevine that it was 20% that come home early. You know how that goes. The visiting authority came and he said something and then someone said something. And, you know, (laughs) I think you actually wrote a a newsletter about that recently. So I had always kind of had this idea in the back of my head, which 20% is astounding, right? There were one in five. She says it's one in three, if I read the study right. And I've asked around lots of people. My parents just got off being mission presidents and stuff. 
I've heard some people say, absolutely. I've heard other people say, we sent two missionaries home in three years, right? Yeah. So I don't know what the exact number is, but there's a lot of missionaries coming home early. When they come home early, a lot of times it's for emotional or mental immaturity. And what we mean by that is they aren't able to cope with the demands emotionally and mentally of what they've experienced, right? Now, I'm not talking about if they've experienced an acute trauma, right? I'm just talking about the normal rigors of missionary life can be too much sometimes for these missionaries. Yep. That's not always a testimony. In fact, I think it's rarely a testimony issue. And yet, what's our answer to that? Oh, they must not have known the church was true. Oh, they must not have uh, prayed like Joseph Smith and, and got their answer, right? If they had just prayed harder, if they had just paid more attention in seminary, it has nothing to do with that. They went on the mission for the most part because they had that witness that this was the true church of the living Christ. Yeah. It doesn't change the fact that when they got out there, it smacked them in the face and then they weren't prepared from a character perspective to deal with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate, you know, going, connecting to that mentorship concept as you unpack this and talk this through, it's like, when I think of the, the good mentors in my life, there was, there was so much more of a character component. <laughs> you, are, you are a caricature drawer artist. <laughs> I know that's, that's why it's, that it's word is vernacular. So, but it's so much more focused on character than anything because I don't know if you'd conflate character with identity. But when I'm with a good mentor and I'm working with a good mentor, I feel like this hope and potential of me being a better person, not just me knowing more stuff and uh, having higher levels of skill. Right? It's a com character component when you're working with a really effective mentor. Yes, and that mentor understands not only what character is, but how it develops, which is what we're going to talk about next. So before we leave Perfect. this idea of scriptural examples, I started to write, and someday I'll write this paper as well, or an article maybe for leading saints. I call it the new heart fallacy. Because when we think about character development, there's a theme in our church that I hear frequently. And that is, if I just pray hard enough, if I just go to the temple enough, if I just pay my tithing, that God will give me a new heart. And so we wish and we hope and we pray for this magic moment. And that is a reference to the story of Saul, King Saul, in the Old Testament, where the scriptures say that God gave him a new heart. And I have spent a lot of time with the story of Saul. And if you think that Saul had great character after God gave him a new heart, you got something else coming because that guy was a bad dude and he was bad it says pretty much a year after he became king, it was already over for that guy because his character was so bad. So we could talk a lot about that. I'm not going to go into the details, but I will just say this. It says God gave him a new heart. That was a singular experience in which he plugged in to divine power. He felt the source of divine power coursing through him such that he began to prophesy in ways that were inconsistent with his character such that people started to comment and say, why is Saul prophesying? Because he doesn't have the character of a prophet. But when you, God was telling him, when you plug into my power, great things happen. And unfortunately, Saul could not remember that lesson. He could not plug back into God's power. Now, mm. testimony says, I want to plug back into God's power. Character says, under these specific circumstances, I will stay plugged into God's power no matter what happens. That's character. Love it. So Love let it. me take you now to the practicalities of that on the next slide. So how does character develop in the real world? Because God does not defy. I'm not speaking for God. So I'll be careful there. 
But in my experience, God does not defy the natural and normal processes of how character develops. We are on this earth to prove. Now, we tend to think of that words in terms of the fixed mindset. We're here to prove that we're already celestial material. And every time we make a mistake, we feel damned to hell because it proves to us that maybe we're actually not celestial material. Hmm. There is a different meaning of the word prove, and it's archaic. We don't use it anymore, but it means essentially, it's not related to the word improve, but in English, it works out well. It means essentially to improve through testing and through trial. It means to go through the test with the idea that you will become better because you went through the test. So how does character develop in the real world? I didn't know this. When I showed up as a leadership teacher, I had no idea. I got through a fluke. I started teaching managers and executives. I had no training in this. So I learned its character. And then I asked, well, how does character develop? Well, I learned that character mostly develops for adults. It mostly develops through crisis. And why is it through crisis? Because crisis is a new experience that jars your mind, your mental map. It throws your mental map into question. And basically, you reach a state where you're failing and you realize what I believe about myself and about the world is no longer useful. It's not helping me reach my goals. And I have to rethink this. That's what we call a jarring experience or a moment of truth is sometimes what we call that. So you have these experiences and then you tell yourself a story about those experiences, but mostly about what those experiences mean about you, your narrative. You create a narrative and your narrative goes something like this. Well, that proves that I'm the kind of person that blank. You know, this experience proves that I'm the kind of person that can learn and can overcome. You know, this experience proves that my mom was right. I'll never amount to nothing. You know, this experience proves that I just have an anger issue and I'm locked in and that's just who I am. That's all narrative, right? And we think that that's like, or maybe don't think it, but you might think now that that's not that significant. That is the significance. You have life experiences and you develop a story about yourself. And it's that story that determines how you show up in the next situation. That's how character develops. It's not a magic wand from God. It's God giving you experiences. It's God encouraging you to narrate your experiences in certain ways. And then that's the character. That's how you show up differently. What do you think, Kurt? So it makes me uh, consider this the you know, the concept of, uh, you know, as people go through life, they experience all sorts of identity questioning situations. And a lot of that, you know, shame can play a big role in these narratives where we, we, you know, to me, shame is the adversary's greatest tactic to attack us and our heart because we end up at the end of shame or experiencing shame, saying some type of identity statement or creating a narrative around that. Like, I just can't figure this out. Therefore, I am. And you see this in the lives of youth all the time that they just can't seem to get life together. And, you know, and there's so much going on in this phase of life. And then they're making these identity statements or, or, or narrative statements that really impact how they see their character and, and that development of character. Yeah. And those aren't just words that they're saying. That's a belief that is formed in their head. And they're giving words to that. They're giving expression to that but it's yeah. the belief that lingers, right? So when they get into a situation that's very much like the last situation they were in, they're going to show up by default in a certain way based off of whatever belief they've formed, mostly about themselves, but also about the other people in that situation. And also about just the way, you know, people and relationships and communities work in general. Yeah. So in the context of like a, being a youth mentor, like you are 
hoping that they're having experiences or you're stimulating certain experiences through youth activities and whatnot in an effort to for a narrative to come up that they'll hopefully lead towards a positive character, right? So this is what I love about youth development versus leadership development, which is primarily working with adults. When you've got an adult, the old phrase, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. That's because their mindset is locked in, right? So I compare it to a piece of metal. When I'm working with an adult, I've got a fully formed and cooled piece of metal. And if I want that metal to bend, I first have to heat it up. And as a mentor or as a as someone who's working on that, that takes a tremendous amount of energy from me to heat that individual's character up to the point where they're ready to change it. But with the youth, they're already malleable, right? The metal hasn't fully cooled. It hasn't fully formed. And even though they sometimes project that it has, it hasn't in most cases, right? Maybe in certain aspects of their character, it has. So number one, I love it because they are pliable. They are malleable. There's something there that's, that's there to work with. Number two, we actually don't have to hope that they're having these experiences because they're malleable. They're having these experiences all the time. Yeah, that's true. We don't have to create them for them. Like they are having life-defining, character-defining experiences. I won't say daily or weekly, but they're, they're having them frequently. So that's already happening. And then number two, the narrative is happening. What do you think these kids are doing when they get around their friends, right? The whole comparison stuff, it's all about trying to figure out what kind of person am I? And as I learn about what kind of person you are, I'm asking myself, is that who I am? Am I that person too? Oh, that feels a little bit different. Maybe I'm not that kind of person. How am I different? Oh, I'm going to go bounce myself off of this person. That's all part of the sense making, the narrative making that's going on there. So as a mentor, let's bring it back, okay? Because we've been talking, to your point, we've been talking pretty theoretical. As a mentor, you have to acknowledge that, that this is already happening. These are natural processes. A youth is going to become an adult, period. There's nothing you can do to stop that. The only question is, what kind of adult are they going to become? In other words, they're having their experiences and they're creating their narrative without any help from you or anybody else. It's a natural part of you know, child and youth development. But when we look at when there are turning points in that process, when the researchers look at that, they always come back to this. Yes, there's a lot of factors involved, but the biggest, the single most impactful factor is if there are mentors who are part of that journey. Now, the other key thing that we find is that mentors emerge. The most successful, helpful mentors are mentors that emerge from within the teenager's ecosystem. In other words, they weren't assigned, they emerged. They were a teacher at school who decided, I'm going to be your mentor. And the reasons why aren't because I was assigned, it's because I felt something. And so I'm going to do that. I'll tell you a real quick story. We have a friend of ours who's a teenager and he's had his struggles. He's had his ups and downs. He's, he's a good kid, as all kids are. He's a good kid, but he's really trying to work out where he fits into the world and what his character is going to be. He's had some really hard experiences with his football program, specifically with his coaches. And there is a guy at the school who is just a teacher at the school, but he heard about this and he decided he was going to meet this kid. And so he started to get to know this kid and to the point where he then was at a football game and he went walking through the stands asking out loud, does anybody know this kid? I'm looking for the parents of this kid. Does anybody know the parents of this kid? 
until our friends who are the parents of this kid went, uh, why is this random dude walking through the stands asking for the parents of our son? Like, yeah, what happened? What did he do? What's going on? This is weird, right? <laughs> and he comes up and he says, hey, look, I just want to get to know you. And I just want to get to know your son through your eyes because I am going to mentor him. I, I am already mentoring him. Now, that's the same guy. He's at a different high school than my son goes to. But when he heard that my son was starting to run and was training for a half marathon, he texted him and said, I'll be at the high school track at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning. Be there. My son didn't get back for like five hours. I was like, man, did you guys run a marathon together? And he's like, no, he was mentoring me. I mean, he didn't use those words, but he was mentoring me about life and about my story, about my narrative, right? So when we talk about mentors, what I mean is they are natural. They are emergent. They are not assigned, okay? There's something that happens in a relationship between an adult and a child where the child opens up the narrative and says, I am willing to let you influence my narrative making. Now, most of the time they do this as do adults, <laughs> right? They do this and they say, don't you dare try to influence who I am or who I'm becoming. Even if I'm on your team, even if I come to your activities, even if I go to your Girl Scouts program, you are not allowed into this space. But every once in a while, there's a connection with an adult and that youth opens up and says, will you come in and help me make sense out of who I am? Now, that's the same process that happens with adults. I'm going to tell you just a moment of, of transparency here. I did it today. I'm in the middle of a lot of changes professionally, a lot of different decisions going on. And they're not just like pro forma decisions. They're not just like about X's and O's. They're about who I am and about who I'm becoming and about my understanding of who I am. And why would I do this instead of do that? It's all about my narrative about who I am. And I was driving this morning and I just at a stoplight, I grabbed my phone, sent a quick text to a friend. And I said, can you meet for lunch? Because I knew at that moment, I needed somebody to help me work through all this because I want to make sure I was seeing myself in this situation the right way. I was asking for a mentor, right? And that's, he's somebody that I know I can do this with. So does a youth have that person in their lives? We wish, I'm going to stop. I'm going to go into some more details, but let me stop and just see, are you having any thoughts or any questions at this point? You know, I, I just love that. And I love the emphasis on that, you know, all these principles we talk about, they're not, you know, they're not just for youth, right? They're, I mean, these are solid, eternal principles, leadership that can happen in all of our lives. And, and it's easy to say that if, if even an adult is struggling, there may be a yeah. character disconnect that maybe mentorship oh. is, is going to be helpful for. Absolutely. Leadership is character. Our relationships are primarily, your, your performance in a relationship is primarily a reflection of your character, right? So you get locked into a certain story about yourself and you can't change. And when we talk about developmental psychology, and again, I'm not a psychologist, but when we talk about that, to me, it's the same from youthhood all the way till the day you die. The only difference is what's happened in your narrative. You're that piece of metal that's gotten harder and harder and harder and harder. But there are plenty of 80-year-olds who have life changing experiences, defining moments when they open up their narrative and they decide, maybe I'm not who I always thought I was. And all of a sudden they behave in completely different ways. And you go, wow, they, you know, what was that? Well, that was, they switched an assumption they had in their head about themselves or about a relationship or about whatever. And their performance is now completely different. Yeah. And really, I'm, I'm just thinking that a lot of times this is what therapy is, is you're paying a professional to open up your, your narrative and say, Okay, we're on a professional standpoint. You're not going to share this. Okay, I'm I'll I'll open up a little bit and you maybe can 
give me some insight here. And, and again, you know, therapies may be one, one mode to, to do this, but it can be done in a variety of ways through these, these mentors yeah. that you have. Right. Yeah, exactly. And there is a time and a place for a youth or for an adult to sit down with a clinically trained and licensed therapist, because mm-hmm. that's especially important when there's been trauma and your beliefs about yourself have been are related to those, you know, past really traumatic past experiences. But yeah. we all are basing our behavior and how we show up on those experiences. I'm 41 years old. So much of what I'm doing right now is based off of stories I created in my head about myself when I was 12, when I was mm-hmm. 16, when I was yep. a missionary at age 20, right? So I can't change who I am today without going back to the point where those beliefs started, right? So if you're a mentor, if you're a coach, if you're a, you know, if you're a mentor, but you're in a teaching, a training, a coaching role, a parenting role, right? We're going to talk about that right now. So much of that is just about helping them work through the experiences they're having. And what does this mean about me? Okay. So parents, let's talk about that. What makes a mentor? Like I talked about being in a mentoring state, like what are the pre-qualifications? This is something I've seen in the business world. It's very common to assign people a mentor or a coach within the organization. And the vast majority of those situations don't work, don't work out. So I started to ask myself, well, what makes, when does this mentoring state come about? And there's really three basic criteria that I've identified. This is just through my own personal observations. The first one is that, that to be in a mentoring state, you have to deeply care about the growth of that person, the child, the youth. Okay. You have to deeply care about it. That seems like a parent is in an ideal situation. Unfortunately, most of our youth workers in the church, they're too busy with their own families, but also with the logistics and administration of their own callings. They're too busy to really care that deeply about a child's growth and development. The child doesn't open up until they feel that. You know, Joseph Smith has quotes about that, right? You can't lead a person until they really feel like you're their friend, like you have their best interests in mind. So that's uh, one aspect of it. So the second aspect of this, this is you have to have no stake in their choices. This is a hard one. You have Especially to have for parents, right? For parents, <laughs> right? Because you, you have to be willing. This is where you give up control. I am not trying to control your choices. I am willing to let you crash and burn. Now, there are limits to that, right? So if you're, if you're a responsible adult, or if you, especially if you're in a position of responsibility, but even if you're not, like you have to first, there has to be boundaries of safety, both physically and psychologically and emotionally and spiritually, right? There are certain boundaries like we say, okay, we're not going to let you die in this situation, but we are going to let you experience pain and we are going to let you suffer. And we are going to let you get it wrong because that creates really rich context for character development. Those are those really rich experiences. Extreme success and extreme failure are when the character is hottest, the metal is hottest, and it's easiest to be molded. So we're going to let you go for it. And you might have extreme success. You might have extreme extreme failure. And as long as you don't die, we're good with that. Well, that's really hard for parents, especially because they have a stake in the child's choices. And what I mean by that is what the child chooses reflects upon the parent's self-image. And when we're in a social context like a church or a school or a community, we're really concerned about what other people think about us as parents. And so we have a hard time letting go of that. So then the third thing is, is to be a transformational mentor, you have to, or to be a mentor period you have to have a bigger perspective. So this is why it's not their friends. As much as they want to say, hey, I've got my friends to talk through, they can help me set my narrative. Uh, no, 
that's not what we mean here. We mean someone who's been down the road, who's seen the path, they understand the implications of choosing this narrative versus that narrative, right? So there's three aspects of being a mentor. Number one is deep interest. Number two is no stake in their choices. And number three is a bigger perspective on the journey. Awesome. Love it. Where to next, Dan? Let's talk about the difference between a mentor and a gifted mentor. So I'm going to go back to that positive deviance curve or that normal curve. And I'm going to say that there's this curve and most youth workers are just youth workers. They're not on the positively deviant side as mentors. Okay. But now I'm going to just take that section of the curve. I'm going to put it in the middle. and I'm going to zoom in on that curve. And what we find is there's actually a bell curve within just that subsection of mentors. And at the far right of the curve on the positively deviant side, we find gifted mentors. And I've heard you use this phrase. A lot of people use this phrase, but you've used this phrase about Al Caraway. I would use it about Brooke Romney, who's also, I believe, one of the speakers for the session, for the summit. They are youth whisperers. What I'm going to say more, maybe more less uh, poetically is they are gifted mentors. Now, this is where we talk about positive deviance, positive psychology, positive youth development. Let's really zero in on the difference between a normal mentor and an exceptional mentor. And what we find is that normal mentors approach their youth work in normal ways. They do so because they have normal beliefs, not bad, not evil, not wrong per se, normal in the sense that they're shared by most of the people who do youth work. They have these beliefs. But then on that far, far right of the spectrum, we see people who show up differently with the youth. They do different things. They arrange different programs. They have different conversations. They ask different questions. Where does that come from? It's not from their knowledge or from their skills. It's from their beliefs that they have in their head. First, their beliefs about the youth they're working with and youth in general. And second, their beliefs about themselves and about the role that they can play in this process. So I've been trying to set this up, right? Understanding that youth development is natural and it happens without our intervention. Understanding that it's character development, that it's experiences and it's narrative. When you understand, those are, those are things that youth whisperers, gifted mentors, they already get that. They're listening to me talk right now and they're going, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Some of them might be saying, boy, I could say it better than that guy. A lot of them are probably saying, wow, those are things I've always believed and couldn't put words to, but this guy's putting words to those things. This is so awesome. And it's a very self-confirming for them. Mm-hmm. However, I want to issue a little bit of a warning for those who are listening. The vast majority of youth workers that I've experienced in the church hold normal beliefs about the youth that they work with and about themselves and about the process and the experience. What I mean by that is they most of the time show up believing that a youth is broken. What I mean by that is this, I got these gears up there on the slide to show that they think about a child or a youth as a machine. And they say, you know what? A fully functioning adult would be a fully functioning machine. And you're actually a broken version of this machine. And my job is to fix you. So by the time you're 18, you can be a fully functioning machine. Okay. So in the church, this is what that looks like. I have in my head what it means to be a proper missionary. And you're broken and I need to fix you and get you ready so that you don't show up and learn that you're actually a broken missionary. Or I have this idea of what it means to be a husband or wife or a father or mother. 
and you don't fit that mold yet, you're broken. So it's my job to fix you and get you ready. You see how this mindset or this lens that they have on, it puts all of the responsibility on them, right? I have to do this. It's my job to fix you. You are likely to get hurt. You're susceptible to harm. I have to prevent you from being harmed. I have to restrict you from certain activities or certain experiences, right? Or that's being vulnerable. Being susceptible is being susceptible to doing things wrong, right? To failure. And then the last part of this normal belief set is when I look at your ecosystem, when I look at your environment, I believe that you are controlled by your environment. I believe that you are a product of the friends that you're around, of the teachers, of the books, of the movies, right? And so therefore, I have to be a force in your environment that is stronger than those forces. They're trying to control you. I have to be stronger and control you more than they can control you. And that really influences the way you show up. What's the result of that, Kurt? When a youth feels you engaging with them in this mindset, what do they do? They, in the normal belief mindset? Yes. They disengage, right? They they disengage. disengage. That armor, that wall, it gets thicker, stronger, and higher. You're actually doing harm to the developmental process that you want to be positively influencing. So this normal belief mindset, even though it's normal, it can have some, it can have some negative consequences. And at a minimum, it immediately disqualifies you from being a youth mentor. That's hard, but that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on the flip side of this, we have the mentors who are positively deviant with their mindset. And they believe things like this. I call it the tree mindset, the plant mindset. They say, hey, you're not the oak tree that you can become. You're this little sapling of an oak tree. But that doesn't mean you're broken. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. I don't have to fix you. You're on a journey. You're in a process. This is great. This is amazing. And if you're a plant, it's the environment and the ecosystem that matters to your growth and development. Now, the truth is, there's some things that I can do in terms of nurturing your ecosystem, water, soil, sunlight, whatever, right? There's a few things I can do, but fundamentally, I'm not doing anything to touch the developmental process. I'm not controlling it. I'm not owning it. I'm not interrupting it. I'm just saying, hey, maybe a little little fertilizer here, maybe a little less water, right? So that's the perspective that a transformational youth mentor takes. I look at that girl, and even though I look at her, she she might be frowning at me, she might be flipping me off, she might be doing all kinds of things that are aggravating. I see how capable she is. I see things in her that she can't even believe about herself. And then I say to myself, my opportunity is to unlock those things. I can't force her to become that person, but man, if I can help her see about her the things that I believe about her, wow. I see that she's resilient. She can go through hard things and she can bounce back. And so my job isn't to prevent her or protect her. My job is to inspire her to get back up and keep going. And when I look at the ecosystem and the environment, I say, she's not just a product of her environment. Her environment is a product of her, of her choices. She can change her environment. She can contribute to her environment. And all of a sudden, my opportunity is to empower her to live up to that potential. Okay, so when I, my favorite way to look at this is a guy who the book is called Coaching for Performance. And he says, when you're a coach, and he's really, he's really talking about being a mentor. When you're a mentor, your job, your opportunity is to unlock their potential. Rather, it's to maximize their potential 
let me say that again. It's to unlock their potential, to maximize their own performance, their own growth and development. So all you're doing as a mentor isn't growing them or developing them. You're unlocking their potential to grow themselves. That's it. You're unlocking their potential to grow themselves. And every interaction, every exchange, every activity that you're engaged with, your goal is how do I unlock her potential to grow herself? That's even different than saying, how do I grow her? It's just simply saying, right, the tree can grow itself. If I give it a little bit more water, a little bit less, a little fertilizer, a little sun, whatever, it's going to grow itself to its fullest potential. Yeah. Am I making sense? Then, yeah. You know, one, one thought that's come to mind as you go through this is, you know, we, I think we all as youth leaders want to step into this role as a mentor, as an effective mentor and have these exceptional beliefs and, and make sure we're, you know, staying within the, you know, or having these exceptional beliefs as our target, it's going to be very difficult to do this if you don't have these exceptional beliefs about yourself, right? And it may take a moment for you to do some self-work and maybe that is calling that therapist you haven't seen in a while. Maybe it is, you know, (laughs) going to the wilderness and taking this to God or whatever, but it will be impossible for you to be a mentor with exceptional beliefs if you do not have these exceptional beliefs about yourself. Now, how does a child's beliefs develop about herself? Through the journey, the experiences yeah. and the narrative. The yeah. only way for you to change your, a gifted mentor has these beliefs, not because they nece- necessarily were born with them. They have them because of their life experiences and the way they narrated them. So now they show up with a certain character. They show up with the character of a youth whisperer and the youth feel that and they open up and we all go, wow, she got that youth to do things and say things and feel things and understand things like nobody I've ever seen. Well, that was because the mentor showed up with that character that was developed through her journey. So you want to change your character, you got to go on the journey. And I'll come back to that briefly at the end. Cool. Let's, let's get a little bit more practical here, okay? Because we've, we've been very theoretical and, and I want to help people who are frustrated in their callings to figure out what does this look like in real life, okay? A little bit of commentary first. From all the land, all the theoretical lens that we've been talking about, I want you to understand the children and youth program that the church put out in 2018, I think, and they relaunched it a year or two later. It is fundamentally sound. When it came out, I was deep in the research on youth development when this program came out. And I looked at it and I said, this program is fundamentally sound. It gives us all the building blocks, all the opportunities that we need. And specifically, I'll just comment, this program is decentralized, meaning they're giving the opportunity to the people who are working on this locally, right? Very different from the scouting program or even from a personal progress program, which was very scripted. So this is not coming from above. It's decentralized. It's personalized. It's recognizing that every youth is on her own journey. It's not a journey of skill development or knowledge development. It's a journey of character development, okay? So it's it's also flexible. So, and then the fundamental beliefs, when you listen to President Nelson talk, he is reflecting that exceptional mindset when he says things like, you know, you can be part of the greatest work on earth. Now you don't have to wait. When he says God has a work for you to do, there are things that you can contribute now. He's saying, I see you as a contributor to the kingdom and to the work now. I see you through all of that lens. And when all the other, you know, people got, got up there on stage and on these videos, right, they're reflecting all of the right things. But why isn't it working for so many of our youth workers? Because I think the prevailing attitude was, hey, we just got handed 
God's magic wand. God gave a magic wand to President Nelson and to the powers that be, and then they handed it to us. And now all we have to do is go tap and that teen burnout, or sorry, the teen checkout and the adult burnout that we've been experiencing for years as assigned youth workers will just go away. And it will be engaging. It'll be fun. It'll be all those things that we see in the videos that the church puts out when they're rolling these things out. And then they get into it and they're like, oh, the youth don't want to set goals. Oh, they don't do anything with their goals. They don't even come to the program. They don't come to the activities. So we start to ask ourselves these questions. I call them the get questions. How do I get the youth to set goals? How do I get them to come to activities? How do I get the presidencies to lead? How do I get the parents to support, right? Whenever I hear those questions in, a, in an organizational environment, I know that there's a disconnect between the structure you have and, or the, the structure and the culture you have and the goals that you have. So that's what we've got here. The vast, I think the vast, I'll say the majority, maybe not the vast majority of youth workers in the church are feeling this like, oh, this is, this isn't, it's grinding. It's not as easy as it's supposed to be or as it looks on the videos, right? So part of that is we have a lot of barriers that the children and youth program doesn't eliminate. I actually have a list of like 13 of them. I'm not going to go through all those for the sake of time on this presentation, but I'm just going to denote a few of the barriers that make positive youth development more difficult in our context than in another context. For example, we assign youth workers. That is a massive barrier. In other words, we are allowing gifted mentors to self-select and to take on those roles. We have people in our congregations who are gifted youth mentors who are currently being told through institution and through culture that you are not to be working with the youth at this time, that God doesn't want you to work with them. That's actually torment for them, by the way, because I know these people. I am one of these people. I'm currently fully engaged as a youth mentor with my Sunday school class. But when I'm asked to go work with adults, like that, that's torture because where my heart is, is I want to be working with those youth. Not because it's fun. <clears throat> there are plenty of people that want to work with the youth because I think it's fun. It's entertaining. It gets them out of Elders Quorum and Relief Society. No, I'm talking about because the opportunity that these youth mentors, these gifted mentors want to be there. Another one I'll just mention is we have unnatural social context. In other words, we force a group of kids in a room and say, you have to be a team. You have to be a community. Well, guess what? Youth don't do this unless they feel psychologically safe. And when they're around kids that they either don't know or that they've had difficult experiences with, they're not going to do this very easily. You have to change the group the group to become an authentic group before you can get a youth to do this to the point where you can mentor them. That's a tall ask. I mean, even a lot of those who are gifted youth mentors in like a one-on-one -on -one context, they're not ready for the additional burden of having to transform a community of kids into an authentic, psychologically safe place. Right. You following me with that, Kurt? Yeah, I think, uh, and these are, these are barriers. Like when you say them, it's like, oh yeah. That is a barrier, but I mean, they seem obvious, but sometimes you don't act as if they're, they're obvious, right? Yeah. And another one that I'll give you, and then I'll give you the solution to that is that we run our, our youth development programs in isolation from the rest of the child's ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And the research is very clear. The best youth programs are interconnected, integrated with the entire ecosystem that that youth is developing in because they don't just develop in your Sunday school class. They don't just develop at your youth conference. 
they're developing holistically over this entire experience that they're having. But we, whether intentionally or not, our programs are extremely isolated, right? You know when you're in our world and when you leave our world. And our world doesn't really integrate with the rest of your worlds, okay? Now, this is where children and youth, I think, is, is another great thing, is fundamentally sound, is they're asking us to integrate that. They're saying, bring in the fact that your child has violin lessons and the fact that, you know, all these other things that they're doing, those are all part of the ecosystem. And you need to think more holistically. This isn't about developing them in the narrow confines of Wednesday night activities. This is about how does Wednesday night activities fit into the entire ecosystem. But our culture at present isn't ready to deal with that or to move on, move on that uh, direction. Now, I'm not going to talk about leadership other than to say, how do you overcome cultural and structural barriers? Leadership. Leadership is character. Even some of the best gifted youth mentors do not have necessarily leadership character. So they're not ready for that part of the bargain. And thus, we stay stuck, as it were. And thus, when the church comes out and gives us this tremendous opportunity for decentralization and personalization and flexibility, we see a program that looks a lot like the program in, in the most fundamental ways, like the programs that were being administered beforehand. Okay? And that's a reflection of the fact that culture is stronger than strategy. The church came out with a strategy and the local culture is stronger. And if you, won't, if you don't have a leadership, you can't break through those cultural barriers. Okay. Now, the practical parts. Love it. What do people complain most about? They're frustrated most about as youth workers in the church. These goals, man, it was brilliant. We loved it. The whole idea, the whole presentation of it, the four quadrants, everything. It's so wonderful. But man, the youth don't set goals or what do we do with these goals? We're not really sure how to approach this, right? So we have activity after activity where we're going to sit down and we're going to do goal setting. I'm not going to say very much about this other than to say, remember that development happens within the ecosystem. And if you believe that the child naturally wants to grow and to develop, then you believe that she has goals already embedded inside of her. Your job isn't to get her to set goals, especially certainly not to give her the goals. Your job as a mentor is to pay attention. She will tell you when goals come up, which she believes will help her become the kind of person that she wants to become. She will say things like, you know, I've been thinking I really should learn how to speak Spanish. Okay, where'd that come from? It came from her sense of who she is and who she wants to become. She identified that learning Spanish would be a way for her to tap into her potential and to grow her character. Guess what? When she sits down on Wednesday night with a young women's leader to do goal setting, she might have all the best intentions to contribute and, and be part of that exercise. And she won't even remember that she had this idea of learning Spanish because it's not in context. It's not emergent. So sometimes they've identified that most of the time they don't, but the parent has such a beautiful, and this is again, CNY gets this absolutely right. It's the parent. The parent is around them. And if you're paying attention, they will say things to you and then you can help them expand on those. Hey, let's talk about that. What does that mean? What does that look like for you? And then there's this theory called flow theory, a psychologist who talked about when do people get into peak performances, but also when are they growing? It's when the, the challenge is just a little bit higher than their skill in the challenge. Now, this isn't about skill development, but the skill development pulls them into a journey of character development. So now we're saying, can you identify goals 
that are just above your skill level in an area that's already feeling like an identity area. I call these identity goals or trophy goals, I sometimes call them. Okay. So I'll give you an example of this. My daughter, from the age, all of my daughters, even my sons too, they, they've been into cooking and baking a lot, right? It's a way for them to express creativity. Well, one daughter in particular was really for a while pressing on this. And so we were giving her opportunities. And at one point, my wife, Jolene says, you should learn how to bake a cheesecake. Cookies are too easy for you, right? So you're wanting to grow and develop. What about a cheesecake? And she goes, wow, okay. So she thought about it for a while. And then next thing you know, she's baking a cheesecake. Well, it turns out to be the best cheesecake I've ever had in my entire life. So what can we do as mentors? We start to help her expand her vision of how to leverage this passion to become who you want to become. So these are the four quadrants. If you understand the four quadrants, it isn't, it shouldn't be, I don't think. It shouldn't be about setting a spiritual goal, a physical goal, a social goal, and an intellectual goal. It should be about you have a passion and a desire to grow. How do we leverage that to help you grow your character spiritually? Those are four quadrants of your character. Not all the quadrants, but those are four of the quadrants. Mm -hmm. How can we leverage cheesecake to help you grow spiritually? How could we leverage cheesecake to help you grow physically, socially, right? So thinking through that exact lens of, of those four quadrants, I said to her, you should think about selling your cheesecakes. People would buy these. Now, she's 12. She didn't know the first thing about selling a cheesecake, about advertising, about anything, right? So there's so much of this that she can't do on her own that we're going to have to help her do. But just above her skill level is... She can engage with adults about selling them a cheesecake and delivering a cheesecake to them. And now she's having meaningful interactions with adults where she's like an equal to them. She's no longer saying, oh, gee, I'll do whatever you want because I'm the kid and I'm supposed to be subservient. She's saying, <laughs> I'm selling you a product. You want yeah. to buy my product. I'm engaging with you in a way that I would never engage with adults normally. That is developing character. Now, you want to send a missionary out. A big problem that missionaries face when they get into the field is they don't know how to deal with adults. They've spent their entire childhood shrinking in front of adults, and they only know how to engage with kids. And why do we see so much immature behavior when the teenagers are out there with teenagers? Because that's all they know. But if we're trying to give them real, meaningful experiences, not fake experiences, I'm talking about real experiences with interacting with adults... Then they go on their mission and they say, oh, I've been here before. I've actually had an experience where an adult said to me, gee, this cheesecake wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I feel a little bit like you pulled the wool over my eyes and I want my money back. Well, gee, this church thing that you sold me on, it isn't what I thought it was going to be. And I kind of blame you for that, getting me into this. How do you deal with that? If you've never dealt with that kind of pressure and that sense of like, this person blames me for a negative experience in their life, that can be very difficult. Okay. Now, the value of them having that experience when they're in the home or when they're in a mentoring environment is we can help them narrate what that experience means. All right. Anything else we should talk about with goals or questions you have, Kurt? No, that's great. And I'm just, uh, you know, again, putting this, this uh, filter of character that we've talked about, and now we're, you know, looking at goals through that, that lens, that really shifts it because it is easy to sort of just handle the quadrants as, for checklists, like, okay, what's one thing you do about, you know, that's spiritually related, right? And it's so easy to get 
caught in that uh, rote, uh, you know, approach to it. But to really step back and say, you're developing as a person, where is it that, what excites you? Like what passions comes out, you know, as we think about this. And because that's, I think, the narrative where God is inviting you to develop, right? Yeah. And, and very specifically, if we want to talk about the spiritual aspect of character, it is not testimony. We're not talking about how do you get a testimony? We shouldn't be, in my opinion. What we should be talking about is how do you develop spiritual character? Mm. Can you self-manage your spiritual journey? There's a lot of kids who walk away with a testimony who don't have the character to self-manage their spiritual experience. And when Sherry Dew talks about, will you engage in the wrestle? She's talking about, do you have the kind of character that runs away from a difficult spiritual problem? Or do you have the kind of character that stays in the fight and finds answers, right? That's a character. So when your child comes to you and says, like, this is one of my favorite stories about my grandpa. My dad says, whenever I would go to my dad for any problem in life, his first question was always, have you taken it to the Lord? And if I hadn't, he would say, why don't you go take it to the Lord and then let's talk. That's a mentor saying, this is an opportunity for you to exercise spiritual muscles and to develop spiritual character so that when you leave my house, you know how to deal with complex problems that involve your spirituality. It's yeah. very different from testimony. I know it sounds similar. It's very different. Right. Yeah. All right. What's next? Well, uh, you brought up one word. I'm just going to make a quick comment. So there's this idea that was prevalent. It's been prevalent over the last 10 years that, that everybody has a spark, that everybody has a passion and that what you're really, and I think a lot of people approach these goals as in like, we're trying to help you find that one thing that God puts you on earth to do. And I don't believe that God put a kid on earth to be a figure skater or to be a skateboarder or to be a violinist or to be a preschool teacher. You could be a lot of different things. It's find a passion that holds your attention on your personal development, hmm. right? And there are times my oldest son has developed as a guitarist over the last five years. There are times where you can just see this isn't about the guitar. This is about him becoming the kind of person he imagines himself to become. Then there are other times where guitar is just a thing and he spends very little time on it right? So we've watched because there's no lessons, there's no pressure from us on the guitar. We've watched as he's gone through these cycles using the guitar to develop his character. It's awesome to see that. But it's yeah. not about saying, hey, God designed you to be a guitar player. So therefore you right. have to fulfill that purpose. It's, it's not that. That's what I should have told my mom when I quit piano lessons. Mom, this is not developing my character. I'm sorry. I can't find it here, you know? And uh, yeah, so. <laughs> yep. For real. <laughs> Okay, let's move nice. on. So activities, I have even less to say about this, but it's important to say this. You have to understand the bit about goals to understand what I'm going to say now about activities. You cannot do holistic youth development on Wednesday night. There's very little that you can do that's going to give them experiences and help them shape their narrative in those life-defining moments. Because of the nature of they're around other kids, their minds on other things, like you're not engaging them at the right skill level, right? So one activity that might be right on skill challenge level for one kid is so easy for another kid that he's checked out or it's so hard for another kid that he's checked out. So if you have more than two or three kids, and by the way, this is another structural barrier in the church. You know, when you have a team, a basketball team, the activity is an activity they all want to do. So you can leverage that activity for character development. Or when they show up to uh, rock climbing, 
because they self-selected. But if you go to a rock climb activity with a group of youth who are only together because of the fact they live in the same neighborhood, they're not there because they love rock climbing and rock climbing is pulling that out of them, right? So with activities, you have to just right off the bat, and I'm talking about weekly activities, right off the bat, you have to just acknowledge there's not much you can do in terms of direct character development in that activity. So what's the point? Is there a point? Yes, there actually absolutely is a point. Activities, in my opinion, should be hundred, almost 100% focused on developing authentic relationships, primarily adults and youth. Now, most of our activities are not doing that. We have too few adults. Well, not in some words, but the adult to youth ratio is way off. The adults that are there are almost 100% fixed on administration and logistics. They're trying to pull off a plan, right? They're not developing relationships. They're not developing authentic relationships, okay? And in addition, the activities themselves are not engendering youth to be authentic, okay? So I have nothing against entertainment. I have nothing against, you know, even kind of the more cheesy activities like the picture I was showing there, you know, where they're blindfolded and they're trying to find Jesus on the tree of life, you know, following the, the iron rod or whatever that activity is supposed to be there. I have nothing against those. But if you're a gifted youth mentor, you recognize that all that is, is potential context for developing a relationship with a child, okay? If you're 100% engaged in logistics, if you're the, the Martha, so to speak, you can't be married. And so simplify your activities. Simplify, simplify, simplify. Get to the point where you're focused on developing relationships. There's more to say on that, but I'm going to stop there because of time. Any yeah. thoughts on that, Kurt, activities? No, I... I I think it's really helpful to start applying these these principles you've talked about in the context of what what we actually deal with, like activities, you know, because it's they can run away from us fast or just sort of be very hectic. Right. And this is where the burnout really comes in because I've been in it. I've been yeah. in Young Men's Presidency twice and the cycle of never ending activities and also this usually self-inflicted idea that the activities have to get bigger and better and and we're trying to impress, we're trying to entertain, right? By the way, just real quick, like, how do we get the youth to come? We default to entertainment and food. Yeah, they can come for those things, but they're not coming for the right reasons. If you want authentic activities, if you want authentic relationships, you have to believe something about people that a lot of people don't believe. And that is that youth fundamentally want to grow. If you give them an experience that's going to help them grow, it will be motivating to them to come. Fundamentally, youth want to contribute. What I mean by that is they want to help other people grow. So if you're creating an experience that allows them to contribute to other people's and other youth's experience, that's a draw. That's a huge motivating factor for youth and for adults. And the third is they fundamentally want to belong to something special, to something unique. And that usually means that something, that group is a group that contributes to other people's growth and other people's experience. So yeah. now when the church and the CNY literature talks about service and they, they're highlighting service and encouraging service, right? It's not just from the angle of going and doing good. That's a great thing, but it's from the angle of getting the youth to engage in authentic activities, authentic relationships. When Julie Beck said a number of years ago, she was the, one of the General Relief Society presidents. She said something to the effect of, you can build relationships better by serving side by side than by, you know, coming to, you know, weekly activities. I can't remember the exact quote, but she really emphasized the idea that 
relationship and community building happens when you're out doing meaningful things together. Yeah. Love it. All right, Kurt, I got something to say about let them lead. And it's not going to be what you think because you think (laughs) that you think that with this mindset of like, they can grow, they can contribute. They're awesome. They're amazing. They have potential. You think that it's natural to say, oh yeah, just let them lead. Well, I run into a problem with this and the church really in the, in the rollout of CNY, they, this used to be a, a theme in the background, but it like they put this theme to the front and center. So I, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to contradict them, but I'm just going to share my experiences with this phrase. There is probably no bigger source of frustration for a youth worker in the church than the concept of let them lead because let them lead creates all kinds of administrative and logistical nightmares. And you can't run a program for other youth through youth who don't know how to run a program for other youth. And it just, it's so much consternation. So when I hear let them lead, I've developed this into my mind to be a little bit different. I say, mentor them to lead because leadership is no different than cheesecake. It's an opportunity for them to grow their character, especially in certain ways, right? It's a rich context. But if you put a youth into leadership situations in which they're overqualified, in other words, their character is way beyond that, their growth and skill level is way beyond that, they'll be bored. If you put a youth in a leadership situation in which they're completely underqualified, they'll be terrified. The outcome is the same in both situations. They check out. They're either bored or they're anxious and they check out. And you don't get the developmental process that you thought you were going to get anyway. So what I say is, If you've got a youth who's interested, remember, it's got to be self-driven and not by assignment. But if a youth is interested in leadership as an identity goal, then it's find that sweet spot and put them in situations that ask them to do a little bit more than what they're capable of doing. And then watch as they engage, right? This is me watching. I've got two kids who are on the student council right now at the high school. And These kids are self-selected. These are kids who raised their hand in front of 3,000 people and said, pick me. I want to be the kid that does logistics and planning. I want to do all the school events. I want to do the dances, right? Pick me. That's self-selection. Even within that, they have to find the sweet spot of what they're capable of. And then they're growing into that as they're planning sometimes very complicated activities, raising tens of thousands of dollars in fundraisers without almost a single adult involved in the picture. Okay. So do I believe that in general, some youth can do these amazing leadership things? Yes, absolutely. But very few youth are there right now. In fact, very few adults are there right now. In fact, that's why when they get called to be young women's and young men's workers, they are terrified because they don't want to, they just like, I don't want to be doing logistics and administrative planning. Like it's doesn't speak to me. It's not where my skill level is. Right. But then Kurt, that gets to the next point that we need to make, which is You have to redefine what leadership is. Leadership should not be, and we as a church, we make it this, and it just drives me nuts. Leadership should not be about administrative and logistical matters. It should be about ministering and mentoring and community building. Wow, so many more youth are ready for that than they are ready to plan the Wednesday night activity or to plan the youth conference or whatever it is. Yeah, love it. So I Where say, do we let, go? Them, let them explore, let them expand, let them experience and let them lead or mentor them to lead in their sweet spot. Perfect. Okay. Last bit of uh, practicality here to apply the theory down. 
callings in the church. Again, uh, structural barriers, but also a lot of cultural barriers about who is working with the youth. My encouragement as just a, an observer here is if you've got gifted youth mentors in your ward or branch or stake, I hope you are using them and using them and using them. And they will never get tired of being involved in mentoring youth ever. We had a couple in the Ann Arbor stake. We were feeling pretty good about ourselves because we'd been to like our sixth or seventh youth conference in a row. They'd been to like 18 or 19 straight youth conferences. Oh my goodness. They were transformational. And if you say to yourself, well, how do I know who these people are? I'll tell you who they are, how to tell. The youth flock to them and they flock to the youth. They can't help themselves and the youth can't help themselves. And they want to be around each other because that synergy, they feel that chemistry, right? So number one, I would say, of course, you got to follow the spirit. And if God tells you from on high to call a certain person that's not a gifted youth mentor and to not call a person that is, of course, you're going to follow the spirit of revelation. But I would say, let your default be, let's identify the youth mentors and let's start there. Let's let God tell us not to call them as opposed to finding an excuse not to call them. So get your gifted youth mentors. And if they're not in a formal calling, man, make sure that the the youth workers who are in the formal calling are involving them as much as possible. Build authentic mentoring relationships. Now, that might not even be possible in your ward. You may not have any gifted youth mentors in your ward, or they might be called to do something else. So my phrase is call the best, develop the rest. You've got to think from a developmental mindset. And this gets back to that idea of the journey. So we'll end with this, Kurt, or any, any discussion you want to have, but I'll, I'll end with this. The question becomes, how do you become a gifted mentor? You might be asking that yourself, listening to this. Or if you're a bishop or a young women's president, and you know you have people working with the youth who have a normal limiting mindset, you might be saying, how do I help other people become a gifted mentor? There's only one answer. It's to go on the journey of character development. It's to start having rich new experiences that make you rethink who you are, that make you rethink your beliefs about yourself and about the world. And it's about proactively working on your narrative so that when you show up in a situation with a youth, they start to feel something different about you. Not because you use the right words, not because you you know, are trying to play a certain part, but they just feel something different in you that creates a shift in them that says to them, I can be safe. I can open up. I can let this person enter my experience of narrative making. So you want to become that gifted youth mentor, or you want to help somebody else become that. You have to start to think like a mentor to the youth workers. Call the best, develop the rest, but do not ever accept that who they are is good enough. And don't fall into the new heart fallacy. Hey, whom the Lord calls, he qualifies. God is not going to wave a magic wand and make this person instantly into the youth mentor you always hoped they would be. They're going to show up with the character that they've developed over 20 or 30 or 50 or 80 years. But you can help them go on a journey. You can help them to rethink their narrative. Now, I'm going to end, Kurt, by saying then we can have whatever conversation you want to have. I'm going to end by saying... I want to be a resource to you. So if you're thinking about how to develop adults 
to be youth mentors, let's have a conversation. Okay. I can't make myself available for a lot of one-on-one, like small off situations. But if you're thinking about how do I do this on a stake level, how do we help all of our youth workers start to think like youth mentors and be youth mentors, then let's have a conversation. If you're thinking about a fireside or a training program or something, I want to be part of this journey for you. And I'm willing to make myself available for that if it's helpful to you. So Kurt, with that, I'm going to stop. And if there's any last discussions or comments you want to have, then we can wrap it up. No, I think, uh, man, just so perfect way to to wrap it up at the end. And uh, I think this gives a lot for leaders to consider now that they're approaching this in the mindset of being a mentor, in the mindset of considering character development as much as they're considering testimony development and just a lot to, to work from. So as I do with everybody, I'll just ask what final encouragement would you give to a room full of, of youth leaders who want to apply these principles? I would say look at the children and youth program, not as a structure or a, a recipe book. Don't look at it as an instruction manual. Look at it instead as a group of principles that have been handed down to us by inspired leadership. And then ask yourself, how do I need to change myself, my character, in order to rise to the potential that they see in me to become a youth mentor? And how do I rise to my potential as a leader to help overcome some of the structural and cultural barriers that are inherent in our reality as youth workers in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? What journey do I need to go on to become that kind of leader who can create a program that is filled with thousands of opportunities for real, true youth mentoring to happen. If you have that desire, then you can start the journey. All right, we made it. A long presentation by Dan Duckworth, but phenomenal nonetheless, packed with information and content that hopefully gives you a new, I guess, paradigm shift when it comes to leading youth and approaching them, not just from a testimony standpoint, but from a character standpoint. I really enjoyed this perspective and gained from it. And again, you can see this presentation and 20 plus others as part of the Young Saints Conference, which begins February 22nd. It's a virtual conference you can watch from anywhere in the world. Registration is free. So go to leadingsaints.org youth or simply click the link in the show notes. We'll see you then. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And When the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.